This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ingrid Bailey, host of the channel, and today I have the great delight and privilege of speaking to Darina Darina Pajani, author of Trophy Cities, A Feminine Perspective of New Capitals, published in 2021 by Edgar. Darina, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ingrid. It's so wonderful to have you here and to talk about what is an incredibly beautiful and at times in many ways very poetic journey that you lead the reader through when you take us to the seven cities that you visited for your research. On the other hand, though, there is an incredible strength and power that comes through from your confrontation, I guess, of coming face to face with the masculine norms, if you like, that undergird what a lot of scholars would conceive of as urban planning theory, I guess. And so we always like to begin by asking people to tell listeners a little bit about themselves. And before we jump into discussing what a new capital is and what the book is about, could you please explain a little bit about who you are, what you do, and really how the research and your background led to the book coming about? Ingrid, I'm a physical planner, and that's considered the most traditional strand in urban planning. It means that I do a lot of research in transport, a fair amount of research in urban design. I care a lot about urban aesthetics. My background is in planning, but also in architecture. And I also do research on housing issues, in particular housing of um, people in vulnerable situations, as well as uh, informal housing. And in the case of new capital cities, um, it was a bit my personal journey that led me to this particular topic. So I was born in Albania uh, back when it was still a communist dictatorship, one of the most brutal in Europe. 
And um, I was born in a new capital, actually. Uh, my city, Tirana, only became a capital in the 1920s. Before then, it was just a big village, really. And then developed, and it's now um, a big city of um, just under 1 million people. So I have that personal experience. Then, um, as I moved through continents for work and school, uh, I uh, landed in the United States. And that's also a country um, that has a new capital city, Washington, D.C. I did not include that in the book because... It's an older capital city. It was done before the 20th century. My time frame was um, the cutoff date for new capitals that I studied was the 20th century, the turn of the 20th century. But seeing DC was was also an inspiration um, for the book. And finally, now I live in Australia. And of course, here we have a new capital created in the early 20th century, Canberra. So... Once I saw Canberra and I compared it to those older uh, capitals that I'd seen, I decided that this is going to be my topic of research for the next few years. This this was already in 2015, 2016. So that's that's a bit the background. My own uh, city, my own native city, Tirana, I did not include in the book either because I've written so much about it and critiqued it quite a lot, I have to say, in in a loving way. <laughs> loving critique, that's always, always amazing. Um, I noticed too um, that in the introduction, you make a point of saying that this book stands out because you come at it from a non-neutral um, perspective. And one of the things I really enjoy about this book is the diversity of feminist thinking and theory that you engage with it is absolutely phenomenal, actually. Um, could you speak a little bit about how you came to come at it from that feminist lens, I guess? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, that was not how I started, I have to admit. Initially, I thought this was going to be an urban design book where I more critiqued um, the layout of the cities and maybe um, critiqued it from the perspective of modernism, not having worked very well for city building. But then I decided, well, why not go deeper into the politics and the ideas that led to the creation of these places rather than just look at their surface? Um, Because urban design is sort of skin deep, right? The way people say beauty is just skin deep. That's how urban design is as well. So how about going a bit deeper? And then that led me to thinking, well, what are the um, similarities of these places? And by the way, all the places I consider uh, major failures. None of these new capitals that I studied, the seven ones that are spread around the world, none of them is a great city in my view. And that includes Canberra. And I recently became an Australian citizen. So now I'm allowed to criticize. <laughs> Thank you. And so now this is my own country and I think I can I can criticize it a bit more, right? Um, so, <laughs> so 
I started thinking, well, what connects these cases in their failures? And first I thought, I thought about race, because race gets a lot of blame nowadays, right? Um, racism, race issues. But then um, cities that are a failure, I could see that um, we're also located in places with um, black majority, in places with an Asian majority. Uh, it wasn't just places with a white majority as in whites oppressing everyone else. So that was one difference. Then I looked at, um, or one similarity perhaps. Then I looked at religion. Does um, religion have something to do? And failures were evident in places with a Christian majority, a Muslim majority, a Buddhist majority, a Hindu majority. So even religion couldn't explain it. Then I said, well, does this have to do with economic development? But then the levels of economic development in the case studies that I chose varied vastly. And still all the places uh, were not very well designed as as I saw them, and then I was well. Maybe it's the um, the governance system. Uh, perhaps authoritarian kind of governments create worse places and democratic governments or more more democratic governments. There is no perfect democracy out there, but more democratic governments create better. Uh, spaces and that didn't seem to be the case either. And then finally it dawned on me that the thing that connected all of these new capitals um, in their failures was the fact that they're all built under patriarchal regimes. Um, so then that's, that's where I had my perspective, my theoretical perspective for the book. Excellent, excellent. And it, it's actually a very deep and rich engagement um, across a wide variety of feminist thinking. Like you draw on Virginia Woolf at times, Catherine McKinnon at others, and of course, Jessa Crispin, who I know you love. But um, in so doing, um, you know, you basically come to this point um, that is the crux of your case studies, um, four themes that that sort of are woven together, if you like, through time and space uh, by these different forms of feminist thinking. Um, I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, those four themes that, that weave these case studies together. Yes, yes, absolutely. And um, I have to say one um, difference between this book and other books that have been written in the past on capital cities, it's it's structured by theme. Uh, most other books that I've seen in this space have been structured by case study. Uh, so one chapter then would have been one chapter on Canberra, one chapter on Chandigarh, one on Epido, and so on and so forth. But uh, from my perspective, the purpose of academic study, academic writing research, is to synthesize theory. So that's why I settled on a structure by theme. That way, all the differences and similarities come through better. I understand that practitioners, sometimes they like to think in terms of case studies, how this place compares to that place. 
but in academia yeah we do it we do it a bit differently and the four themes of the book are um, the first one talks about the creation of these new cities in the context of nationalism because all of them even though some of them have been quite recent all of the countries are in some way post-colonial. So there has been an effort in all the new capital cities to represent the nation in their city space. So I thought that was important. Uh, and then next I talk about um, the um, physical manifestation of new capital cities that's um, obviously, my own area of expertise, physical planning. Then I move on to the symbolic meanings of these new cities. And there is a lot to unpack there, including um, religion and including state power as represented in city space. Uh, but then finally, I don't leave it at that that's city, the city as a capital, but then how about um, the city as an everyday space where regular people are to live? The city not as a representative space for the state and government. So I devote one chapter to the regular person, the little person, um, so to speak. And I unpack a lot of issues. There are a lot of failures in terms of housing, in terms of transport um, in these in these cities. And of course, my perspective, um, well, it's a feminist perspective. So I look more at how particular designs have impacted women. I also look at the economics of these cities, um, not um, in a lot of depth, because that's not quite my area of expertise. But I do have to say there that in no case were new capitals created with the intention of making them completely gender egalitarian, right? As in um, even egalitarian employment. And national um, capitals, we know that they're the seat of the government, the national government, and um, usually there, there is also some local government involved in there. And we know from a few cases like Brasilia in Brazil, Chandigarh in India, they were created in the mid-20th century with the socialist ideas of equality, general equality. But um, even those in those cities, there was never a talk of uh, gender equality in particular. So all the countries in their respective governments they have huge disparities in the employment of women. I mean, if you just look at the um, parliaments of all the countries, my case studies in the book, um, there's gender gaps there for sure. So then that has economic repercussions in the women for the women that live in those cities. If they get paid less, they can afford um, less housing, less transport, and so on and so forth. And some of the cities that I've studied they're very split. Their urban space um, has huge divisions where the people with money, which tend to be the people that live in government, but also perhaps um, business elites, they live in nicer spaces. There can be quite fancy housing there. But then there is also a mass of marginalized people, all the people that provide services to that first group of um, wealthy residents. And we see 
large informal settlements in some of the new capitals. For example, Abuja, the new capital of Nigeria, has that characteristic. Chandigarh in India does as well. Brasilia in Brazil. And even Naypyidaw in um, Myanmar, the new capital of Myanmar, Burma, uh, has a large um, mass of existing towns and villages around the new capital where uh, housing standards are very, very different to um, the new city that was created, as in much poorer. Mm. So of those failings in these new cities, do you think then that there is any hope in remediating some of those failures, if that's the right way to even look at the question or am I looking at the wrong question? I mean, I suppose there are steps that these cities can take to ameliorate the situation, if not eradicate these problems entirely. One, um, there are technocratic um, solutions there, you know, give better housing to everyone and transport. But my question is more fundamental. It's like, why were these spaces created in the first place, right? Because think about it in these terms. If you're an urban designer, how many, or planner, or even a politician, you know, if you're president of the republic or uh, premier, how often do you have an opportunity to build a whole city from scratch? Is a once in a lifetime or once in um, several lifetimes opportunity, right? So one would think, well, here is the chance to um, let go of all the ways of old cities and create a space that's perfect, right? It doesn't, doesn't have any of the old problems that tend to afflict cities, existing cities with a history and a baggage. And yet, all of these new capitals, it's like they simply transferred all of the urban problems, the social problems that were existing in the nations, in the respective nations, and um, they just moved them to the new capital. So it's like they had a mess in the existing capital, and they just went and made a mess somewhere else. Um, In the process, invading nature, invading the wilderness. Yes, I think you see that particularly starkly, and I guess it's because I've I've lived there and I've experienced it um, in Canberra, where you actually have the city encroaching into the wilderness, the environment, if you like. So, yeah, 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 no, exactly. I mean, some people see Canberra as you know, nice setting because it has this very spread out settlement so you can be in contact with nature very quickly wherever you live. But I don't really see that as an advantage. I mean, the way I see it as a feminist, as an eco-feminist, the better way would be to group um, housing and people together and don't go out too much into the nature so as to give um, a chance to animals, other animals, non-human animals and plants to thrive without too much interference from us. Because anytime there is um, a human intervention in nature, um, there will be disruption there. Don't just look at, you know, there's, oh, here is just a few houses here and there. What 
what can they do? Well, houses aren't just houses. They always come with a road to connect them to where the people living in those houses need to go to. There is a lot of um, underground infrastructure. Uh, the air will become polluted anytime you build anything, even a simple thing. And there will be a car that drives the people in and out of that space. So that will come with some amount of pollution. So there is always damage. I mean, wherever humans go and build, there will be damage. So it's good to keep our damage contained. Um, that's that's one way to look at urban planning in general, actually, as damage control. <laughs> I'm, re- I'm reminded of Thomas Siegler's famous, famous comment about, is there such thing as a qualification for town planning or urban planning? This could be one, trying to minimise damage to nature. That, that could be... Um, a guiding sort of slogan for for young planners going into the future. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm really actually um, quite curious to find out what you thought. Um, Chapter two had me absolutely, um, I think it's chapter two, it might be chapter four actually, about the symbolic manifestation of new capitals. I'm actually really curious to know what the most interesting thing was you found in your research for that chapter um that's just it's a phenomenal chapter (laughs) well there is a a couple of things so partly i talk about um the state symbolism as represented in city space and in all cases what i saw was an effort by the state the government to glorify itself in city space. So build these um, grand buildings. In the case of um, Nur Sultan, Kazakhstan, they were literally gold painted, sort of golden color. So that that tells you something right there. But even in the milder cases like uh, Canberra, you know, we pride ourselves as a democratic nation and the parliament building has this design where the roof is a green roof and it sort of slopes um, up upwards from the ground. So symbolically, people can sort of walk on top of um, the, their government and the government um, meetings happen underneath. Yet even there, we can see the state power um, in the disconnect between the government district and the regular spaces where people live. So there is all these government buildings in Canberra. They're um, quite distant from one another. Even one has to walk quite a lot to um, be able to see that whole representative um, district there. But then to get to the actual housing where normal people, where you might meet normal people as opposed to you know parliamentarians and you know, important people, uh, one needs to drive. I mean, um, the, the houses are located at quite a distance. So Symbolically, to me, that means that the government is unapproachable at 
at some level. And in other, in other new capitals, this is um, much more evident. For example, in Chandigarh, the district is um, surrounded. There is a guard at the door. And in Abuja, the new capital of Nigeria, um, there is the uh, presidential villa. And I've not seen it with my own eyes because there is very restricted access. It's not as if any... Um, little researcher like me can just go in <laughs> and yeah, take a peek. It seems very secretive, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, so that villa is, um, people describe it as an unassailable fortress. So there is this network of bunkers underneath um, because the government is prepared for attack at all times. And the sad part is it's not even attack by some foreign invading power. Sometimes these governments are um, afraid of their own people because they know they haven't done right by their own people. So they need to, presidents and prime ministers and whatnot, they need to, to protect themselves at all times by um, from the people just turning against them. So that's that's where we're at. Governments are not do not see themselves, and then the people do not see them as such either, do not see themselves as um, your friendly, approachable entity that's there to help you. They're almost in opposition to their own people, even when it doesn't look like so on the surface. For example, in um, in um, Kazakhstan, um, the new capital is called Nur Sultan after their former president, and he was in power for 30 years. He kept winning elections in a landslide, and uh, local people called him Papa, as in father, the father of the nation, the new post-Soviet um, Kazakhstani nation. So when I did my research, on the surface, the things looked quite perfect for him. He seemed to be beloved by the population. There is um, this monument in the center of Astana, sort of a lookout point. And you can go up there and there was this imprint with his hand, um, and people were invited to put their hand on his hand and this way be granted a wish. So he had assumed this almost um, godlike properties, right? But then we saw after the book was published this year, we saw huge protests in um, Kazakhstan and a lot of protests were directed against him. So finally, we saw that people were not as happy as they seemed, not at all. So do you think then that this will change future, that that symbolism will change future planning or urban design as a result? I guess what I mean by that is that, um, you know, you've got this big, this symbol that has changed and insofar as there is an element of symbolism attached to the design of the city to meet that person's character, do you think that that over time will change some more? I expect it will, but see, there's the trouble with urban design. It's not like other arts where if you don't like the painting, you just destroy it or suppress it and do it over, or the sculpture, you just topple the sculpture and you're done. Um, it's a functional kind of art where um, you create the art, but then people also use it, people live in it. So change takes a long, long time in urban design. There is too much of a sunk 
cost. So I expect, yes, the symbolism will change, but it will take a while. And I guess that that leads me to the question about um, your perspective about um, a feminist capital. Um, you've touched on it already in a earlier points, but I'm just wondering if there is something inherent all the time where you need to have something like a protest or rebellion, um, be that for economics, be that for um, rulers that think they're gods. Um, <laughs> they do. That, <laughs> to, to, to bring about the um, a, a more feminine or female female friendly or simply just a city that takes into account women's experience of space. Yeah, so that's um, at the very basic level, right? Um, a mm. city that takes into account women's needs, women's experience of um, city space. So that would already be a big fix, right? Um, cities can improve by creating, for example, by creating transport that's um, responsive to women's demands, as opposed to having very rigid uh, kind of transit systems where women need to shuffle around to complete all the myriad tasks that they need to complete during the day. It's not just the commute, but women do all of these other things. They stop and pick up groceries. They pick up the kid from daycare. They go and visit um, grandma and you know, all this multitasking. Um, so they need transport their response to all of that as opposed to rigid trunk lines on rigid schedules. That's one thing. Then they need more secure housing and to achieve that one needs economic security in the first place so um, equality in um, salaries equal pay for equal work that's that would be important as well women need safety i mean we know from research that um, even though men are more often uh, actually the target of violence in cities but women are more safety conscious so often they just kind of self-isolate at home if, if they're not made to isolate by male members of the family. In some cases, women's mobility is very heavily controlled and they're under surveillance. But um, even when that doesn't happen, often women, because they're fearful, they're taught to be fearful from childhood. That's how we socialize young girls. So um, they perceive the city as a somewhat scary space and that might cut them off activities. So yeah, women need safety as well. That's, um, that's quite important. They need services that are accessible. And by services, I also mean service for the family. So schooling of kids, clinics, um, all of these things that um, mothers, families, parents need to access. So all of that needs needs to be there in the first place. I mean, in some of the new capitals, these services aren't even um, quite provided. Or park space, um, same thing. It's, it's very good for children to be able to have a little park in the neighborhood that's accessible on foot. Um, but these are, like I said, these are sort of fixes on top of existing structures. They do not really challenge the patriarchy, the underlying um, structure or model that guides our society, our way of thinking. A different way was would be to completely... Um, revolutionize our society and create something that's more matriarchal. And 
in the book you make a distinction between matriarchy and a German concept, was it? Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so some people will think that a matriarchy is just a um, role reversal, right? Where uh, we have the same society we have now, but women are on top. And to me, that's no solution at all. I mean, there is zero net gain. There are some uh, works of fiction out there, some pretty funny movies that have envisioned just such a society where women are sort of boss and they kind of order men around and um, they just disregard men oftentimes, um, treat them badly. And that's that's not a good society. I mean, that's not my dream uh, way of living either. The way I envision a matriarchal society is as a place that's egalitarian. Um, there is equality between all genders, but there is also economic equality because I don't see how there can be true equality in society if, say, there are rich women on top and poor men on the bottom. That's that's not a very good system. And that's something we do have now. I mean, I talk about the patriarchy quite a lot, but we need to be aware that if you're in a city and you're um, a wealthy or even middle class woman, um, you would probably have better life chances than a man that's um, that's very poor and lives in an informal settlement, right? So um, there, are, there are those distinctions as well. But yeah, the matriarchy I have in mind is a place where... Uh, people sort of care for one another rather than be at each other's throats via hyper-competition, the way we've organized things now. And the word matriarchy itself, itself I mean, um, being derived from the word mother, uh, is there because to remind us that people need to act towards one another as a good mother, right? But good mother is expected to do for for her children that's how people should be treating one another in a perfect world in a perfect matriarchy that's how i see it and if society is structured that way then i imagine that um, city spaces would also be very very different yeah for sure i yeah neoliberalism always comes to front of mind i think when we're thinking about the hyper competition but absolutely um, well that's why that's why i actually decided on the timeline um for the study um i mean let's not forget that patriarchies have been a mainstay of human societies for centuries and millennia even so there have been gems beautiful cities out there, Venice in Italy, Varanasi in India, and those have been created under patriarchies, right? Um, Those places were definitely not a matriarchy the way I described it when those cities were created. But at least in the past, there wasn't the sort of um, arrogance yet of um, creating cities that were um, so large and reached so far out into nature. Uh, Cities were created sort of more organically over time, partly because of economic constraints and partly because of technological constraints. So in the end, the outcomes were better for uh, women as well in those cities. Whereas in the 20th century and 21st century, which is my timeline for the book, um, the patriarchy sort of joined forces with 
capitalism as well as modernism as a movement in the arts, architecture, and city building, and created some particularly um, unappealing city models. Yeah, there, there's a standout. I think it's again in Chapter 4 where you use a quote from Catherine McKinnon's work where she outlines a feminist uh, critique of statehood and nationhood and ideas of sovereignty and then very starkly it's almost like a juxtaposition but it jolts the reader I think um, you move and compare that to Hobbes Hobbes's articulation of nation and statehood uh, in Leviathan and it's it's almost as brutal as brutal architecture <laughs> yes 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 exactly yes that's that's precisely that's precisely what what i had in mind when um when i wrote those quotes yeah yeah so um i'm just wondering um though now if you have seen in i know that you did 70 or roughly 70 interviews for your research, yeah. did you see any everyday acts of resistance um, from from women that you were interviewing or, or came across through the course of your research? Um, you know, not, not really. I felt like people were sort of um, used to, to their situation. I mean, there is protest erupting in all the places, you know, from time to time over, over various issues. But um, I don't really think that um, the critique has ever stemmed from a feminist perspective. Uh, the one city among the case studies where there's been an effort to um, cater to gender is Sejong, the new capital of South Korea. Not many people know this, but um, Seoul is no longer the administrative capital of that country. There is this new city that's been created called Sejong. It's about half a million people. And Seoul remains, you know, the, the spiritual capital and part of the government is still there, but a lot of functions have already moved. And in this new city, um, it's been actually stated in policy documents that uh, the new capital should be a place for women's happiness. But even there, um, what the city leaders mean by women's happiness is a city that's good for mothers and housewives. So they still conceive of gender in very patriarchal terms and um, economic equality is definitely not there even in South Korea. And recently they elected a president that's uh, particularly opposed to the feminist movement. I mean, very, very openly so. Yeah, I guess that allows for some opportunity, but that is, it's actually, it's quite sad, but you've got to remain optimistic, I think. <laughs> yes, yes. No, we do, we do, we do. I mean, I don't, I don't want to make um, things sound overly negative because in the end, planners were futurist, right? Um, we envision the future and you cannot envision a desirable future if you're pessimistic. So um, my message to the students listening here is yes stay optimistic i mean do um, take account of past failures so that they're not repeated but stay optimistic about the future um that said i mean one um a dose of cynicism 
doesn't hurt um, in planners either. <laughs> That's very good advice. Um, and so speaking of the future, I'm just mindful of time at the moment and we've taken up an awful amount of your busy schedule today, actually. Um, I'm just wondering what you have planned in terms of future research. Is there research that you would like to do that builds on this or are you over capital yes. cities and want to look at something new? <laughs> uh, well, for one thing, I want to extend uh, the number of cases that um, – that I study. A new PhD student is about to start her uh, research under my supervision at um, the University of Queensland, and she will look at two case studies that were not included in the book. One is the new capital of Egypt, uh, this place built in the desert not too far from the um, existing capital, Cairo. It That just opened for business last year, so it, parts of it are still under construction. And we'll see. I mean, once the research is completed, I don't want to preempt it, but just looking at the city space, it shares many similarities to existing cities in the sense of these very representative spaces, big parade grounds, and so on and so forth. And then the second case study she'll um, look at is um, Nusantara, the new capital of Indonesia. Uh, that one is still. Um, being designed, so the planning is in the works. Nothing has been built yet, but even the idea itself has raised many concerns among environmentalists because the plan is to move the capital from uh, Jakarta. Jakarta has many issues. You know, it's a very congested city, polluted. It's literally sinking, um, partly because of its location, but partly because of um, human intervention in the underground waters. So. Um, the solution has been, you know, instead of fixing Jakarta's existing problems, to just um, take up and move, move the capital somewhere else. And the location is Borneo, the Indonesian portion of Borneo, right in the middle of the jungle, uh, where endangered species live, including um, some very huge orangutans that I've seen pictures of. So what will happen to those non-human animals when the new capital moves. That's that's a concern. So um, I will I will continue in this space by um, studying these two new new cases and we'll see if a new model has been found or if countries and nations and cities continue to repeat the same mistakes. Yeah, wow. I look forward to um, hearing more about particularly the Indonesian, but the Egyptian one sounds absolutely phenomenal as well. Congratulations. Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> well, it shows that um, that I've sort of landed on an actual problem. I mean, new capital are, are still being planned. It's not an obsolete subject where oh, all the capitals are done, so why are we talking about this? The reality is that um, countries keep considering moving their capital and a few are doing so as we speak. Yeah, and that's got, extending on that, that's going to have great implications when you think about the obvious uh, crisis that we're facing with climate change and things like that. Are we just going to simply keep moving the problem? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So 
that's yeah, that's really important work. There's no, nothing obsolete at all about that. I hope not. I hope not. I hope the work stays relevant for a while. I'm pretty sure it will. <laughs> But on that note, Dorina, um, thank you so much for your time. I'm just very appreciative of of the time that you've given us today. So um, my pleasure. I'll say goodbye to the listeners and say goodbye to you. Okay. Bye, Ingrid. Good talking to you.